Financial leaders gathering in Morocco last week to discuss the state of the global economy had no shortage of material, weakening economic growth, fragmentation and the impact of higher rates on economies already under stress. But as many of them arrived in Marrakesh for the World Bank IMF meetings, news was breaking of the horrific attacks on Israel and throughout the week what is a developing war. The human suffering there and in Gaza is profound and the world is watching, fearful of how the conflict may spread. It's in this context, just over a week on, that I'm joined by three experts from Fidelity International to consider investing in a world that seems even more fragile than before. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. With me today are Steve Ellis, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income, Gita Bao, Global Head of Fixed Income Research, and Salman Ahmed, Fidelity's Global Head of Macro and Strategic Asset Allocation. Thank you all for joining me. Hi Richard. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having us. We're speaking on Monday lunchtime, and Salman, you were in Morocco last week for the IMF World Bank meetings. Um, the attacks would, of course, been on everybody's minds. Was that reflected in the panel discussions? Interestingly, less so than you would uh, think. Uh, I think at that point, the situation was uh, still developing, as you can imagine. Uh, a lot of focus behind the scenes, if you will, on the, on the aid flows to the region, especially to the Palestinian territories. But at the same time, from a macro perspective, still you know, trying to understand and gauge uh, uh, the, the wide implications of the, of the war post the attacks on, on Israel. So, so a bit early, I would say, in terms of, uh, you know, firm conclusion and judgments as a result of this, obviously, shock. And then um, just picking up on something you said there, behind the scenes, it was uh, the subject of discussion. So privately, people were talking about this. Certainly, obviously, it's a, a big development, which has a potential for, you know, as we've been talking about, a wider conflict taking hold. Uh, and that's concerning people. Uh, but but the public on the public panel side, I think less uh, focused than you would think, uh, given the sensitivities involved and in the fact that this is still a developing situation. And Gita, um, the companies have been pretty contained in their response so far as well, haven't they? Companies have been pretty contained in their response. I think I think the focus of of everybody has been really on um, affected employees in the region. Um, and ensuring the safety of, of colleagues and, and, and friends and family. Um, but away from that, I think we are starting to see the first um, impacts on the more indirect side um, in commentary from companies. Obviously, we have um, a, a tick up in energy prices um, as a result of where um, this um, attack has happened. Um, we are going to see um, more companies coming forward with what the impacts will be over time. Interestingly, very hot off the presses just today, um, we've got our, our results of our monthly analyst survey. We'll come to that later on, actually. We'll get a little bit more detail um, once, we've, um, once we've discussed the big picture a little bit more. But a lot of assessments we've heard from Salman um, looking at the macroeconomic picture. Gita's talking about companies still trying to assess. And Steve, uh, there's been some movement on markets in reaction to, to, to the attack. But, but not an awful lot, certainly not yet. Yeah, no, it's, it, that's true. Um, I think everybody's trying to digest the news and work out what the implications are, whether this, you know, this, this does spread and what the potential impact it could have on oil prices, whether there could be a flight to, to safety, etc. But, you know, so far, um, it's been fairly muted. We've seen uh, Treasury yields, uh, you know, like 10-year yields, for example, 
they were nudging on 5% uh, just a week ago. So now down at 480. But, you know, some part of that is a flight to safety. But I think some part of that is also um, some statements from Fed members who, uh, Fed officials who are almost hinting that the, the Fed cycle is over and so on. So it's very diff- difficult to decipher. But all in all, so far, it has been a fairly muted reaction. Well, perhaps that is a good time to segue into the uh, our normal topics of, of conversation around um, economics and central banks. You're talking about them there. Um, and this is the great economic debate of the moment, interest rates um, and the potential impact of central banks keeping them higher for longer, maybe maybe not even higher still, Steve. But um, when we last spoke on this podcast um, back in July, um, you said you were concerned that over-tightening from the Fed was going to cause something to, to snap. Well, we're in October. Um, there has been another rate rise um, since then. Um, have, have you changed your mind or um, is this still tension not yet snapped? No, I haven't changed my mind. I, I do think that, uh, I mean, central bankers, I think, are now getting... The um, you know they're, they're now recognising that that their tightening so far is actually doing something to tighten financial conditions, and and I think there will be a growing realisation that something could snap because you know I think when you boil it down to as to why something hasn't snapped so far, I think the answer is that well two things. First of all, we've had uh, a much higher uh, fiscal impulse in the US, for example, than. Uh, people thought so. The federal deficit's running at eight and a half percent of GDP at a you know a time where the labour market was uh, very tight. Um, and the second thing is that the the large excess savings took a longer to work their way through the system. So the Fed of tightening rates very aggressively at a time where you've had some very sort of artificial stimulus um, and you know propping things up. But when the dust settles and we start seeing the fiscal impulse turning negative into the beginning of next year, and once those savings are exhausted, then that's where this uh, tightening in credit conditions is really going to bite, and the demand destruction is going to come through. And I think that's where central banks will realise that their actions are, you know, they've, they've probably over-tightened in the cycle. So, Salman, coming to you then, um, given the context that Steve has just um, uh, set out there, um, what, what is your team's current base case um, of how the coming year is going to going to pan out? So our base case uh, is, is one of cyclical recession. And the factors Steve mentioned earlier are actually the main drivers of that. We do think that ultimately, like gravity attracts all mass, uh, interest rates, high interest rates will start to damage the economy. Uh, and there have been some, uh, you know, uh, very important factors at play, which have delayed that transmission mechanism, if you will. So Steve mentioned excess savings. In addition to that, you have corporate sector, which had done, you know, longer term financing. So as the refinancing flows come in, the balance sheets roll over to these higher real rates. We think the transmission channel will kick in and, and then we'll see the real damage uh, to the economy. Uh, and and that's that's what's driving our base case of a cyclical recession on the back of these higher, uh, higher for longer rates profile, which the central banks have pumped into the system in order to fight inflation. So we're, we're delaying the inevitable is the, is the message there. Certainly, delaying the inevitable. We don't think that this is, you know, a new uh, anti-economics type regime where, you know, interest rates don't matter or the Fed doesn't matter. Uh, we are in, uh, by any standards, in restrictive territories in terms of rate profiles. Uh, and, and, and the risk is a lumpy transmission channel uh, whereby you have, you know, uh, damage kicking in uh, over a short period of time. But yes, uh, the COVID shock uh, and the factors Steve mentioned earlier 
have been very uh, have been very powerful and have been at play. So distortions there, but not time to rip up your economics textbooks just yet. Um, Gita, that's the top-down view from Salman. What about from the companies up? What are the analysts telling you? You mentioned the analyst survey, um, our regular monthly assessment from the analysts of what's going on in the real economy. How are they reporting? So I would say, you know, going back to um, the attacks um, 10 days ago, um, we've seen a real change in the tone from our analysts just within um, the past week. And so where we had been on an upward trajectory in terms of management sentiment, um, kind of coming from most parts of the world, over 70% of our analysts um, filled out the survey last week and our, and our results are now showing a, a marked downturn in management sentiment across almost all regions and across um, um, most sectors. With that said, costs and the cost environment and the inflationary pressure that we've been seeing continue to be persistent. And, and on the labor side, we've seen high labor um, cost inflation coming across sectors and across regions for, for quite some time. But it's these intermittent shocks that continue to pressure non-labor costs higher. So I would agree with what Salman says about the transmission mechanism not being broken, um, but it is kind of um, a challenge from the bottom up side that we keep seeing these shocks that keep putting upward pressure on, on our inflationary expectations from our company side. And you talked about a more negative um, sentiment, but it's still not as negative as Salman is setting out. Absolutely not. Um, I think um, from the bottom up side of things, our analysts were at their most negative, kind of starting at the invasion of Ukraine by Russia in February um, of last year. And it persisted through most of the year, but they become uh, significantly more optimistic than where we were a year ago. And while we are kind of still in negative territory, it's, it's much more um, balanced. And we do have certain months of, of positive results from our analyst team. So Salman, um, how do we marry that difference of opinion between the analysts um, who are talking to companies day in, day out, and then your big picture um, assessment, looking at some of the drivers, the ones that Steve was talking about, and the things that we cannot escape, as we've just established, um, the, um, the deferred problems that, um, that you're, you're, you're talking about? Definitely. I think it's important to uh, to think about the bottom-up signals which our teams are picking up to see the cross-validation with the, the top-down macro. So I think this, this shock in this cycle has been a policy-driven shock. And the intense debate is on policy lags, uh, you know, long and variable lags, if you will, specifically. Uh, so the macro policy calibration is, is, in this cycle at least, is, is focused on, you know, uh, how central banks are trying to fight inflation. Now, what uh, what is very important and useful uh, in the surveys uh, which come from our bottom-up analysts is that they are still picking up signs of sticky inflation. Now, coupled with current resilience and demand, that may be a very good thing. But if you, if you bring it back to the macro side of things, that is actually a very big problem because that satisfies the demand for higher for longer. And, and that's where I think that that dilemma has to be uh, thought about, which is that can the current resilience uh, be a recipe for higher for longer, which then does the damage. So there's a timeline problem here. And I think uh, getting the signals from bottom up and top down, which is focused on policy naturally, is a very important way to, to tackle it. And Steve, how do the portfolio managers um, that, that, that you run, how, how do they 
marry this type of information. You've got sometimes conflicting signals, sometimes they're supporting um, uh, another argument, but maybe over a different uh, time horizon. Um, what's, the, what's the juggling that goes on? Well, there's a tug of war, if you like, between what we call the duration or the interest rate risk that we're running in the portfolios at the moment, and also the credit spread exposure that we're running. So you know, if we're right, and we do think that in, the inevitability here is that central banks are at the, the peak of their hiking cycle. And if anything, the next move is one where into next year, they may have to reverse course and even do quantitative easing. This is a time where empirically, uh, you should be adding some duration. And that's what the portfolio managers have been doing more recently, is saying, okay, we're done. We're now at or near the end of the tightening cycle. On the other side of the ledger, the credit expert exposure is, um, like I say, we, we've had some, the, the, the narrative has been one of, well, it's higher for longer and that the economy is more resilient than we thought. And I think I've explained why we've had that resilience. Central banks are having to do a lot of demand destruction here to keep inflation pressures low. And it has been more persistent because fiscal policy has been much, much looser than we expected. And, and we've had those... Um, you know, the final vestiges of those excess savings. Once they're gone, I think, you know, that there's going to be more downward pressure on inflation. And you couple that with what's happening to some of the monetary aggregates, it's all pointing to, to, I think, a very sharp disinflation environment, which is going to be very conducive to having, wanting to have interest rate risk in the funds. But I think we're heading towards, uh, you know, as Salman's pointed out, a more cyclical recession, which is not priced into credit markets. So it's a time where you, you reduce your, your credit exposure and go up in quality and also having more interest rate risk in the funds. But so many influences um, at the moment. So, you know, we're talking largely about the US at the moment. And, you know, the Fed has got um, a lot of things counteracting. You've got the, the, the fiscal stimulus that you've talked about so that the normal levers that they would normally be pulling, you know, in high interest rates would slow the economy. It's not working right now. The jobs market in the US is still strong. Companies are hiring despite the very large levels of debt and, and rates shooting up um, at quite a pace um, over the past year and a bit. Um, how confident can you be that the transmission mechanism isn't broken, that it's just just delayed? Um, I think still very confident, to be honest. Uh, like I say, I think that, you know, this time isn't any different. So we, we saw in, say, there's many instances, but just rewind to Q4 of 2018, when we saw a rise in real yields, and it caused all sorts of damage. It broke the repo market. And you know, the, the, the Fed had to do a U-turn and actually re-engage with quantitative easing again and cut interest rates. You know, now we've had one of the most aggressive tightening phases in history in the U.S. and with a very aggressive, you know, an aggressive tightening financial conditions. To think that we're not going to, we're going to escape this without any collateral damage, and I use the word collateral specifically because that's what U.S. Treasuries are, by raising... Um, interest rates very aggressively in that having put back term premium and and also you know convincing the market that interest rates are going to be held higher for longer on top of the you know very high issuance that we've got from the fiscal side means that treasury yields that your collateral is going higher and higher i think it's always a great taboo here that the fed wants to kind of i can the exasperation that mr powell has when you know, he's not allowed to, to incur on the fiscal side to actually talk about the, how monetary and fiscal policy should be working in tandem. 
The fact is that the Fed have had to do all the, the heavy lifting here and tighten policy very aggressively to offset that very loose fiscal easing says a lot, I think, about the way con- uh, policy is conducted. And again, once that fiscal um, impulse turns negative, which is going to do quite sharply at the back end of this year, I think the tide will go out and, re- and we'll realise that there's been a huge amount of demand destruction by the Fed. And that's when I think we'll see the transmission mechanism working more appropriately. Thank you. And someone turning to Europe, um, it's, it's a little bit more clear cut um, in Europe, isn't it? Definitely. I think uh, I'm pleased to share that economics is very much alive uh, in, in, in Europe. And in, you see the transmission channel working quite well. Uh, you've got, and that's got to do with the structural difference uh, in the European uh, uh, financial sector versus the, the US financial sector. So bigger dominance of non-financial corporates in the, uh, on the credit side of the economy, uh, the, the pass-through of rate hikes to, to the non-financial corporate sector is, is faster as well because the dominance of variable rates, if you will, compared to the US economy. So, so we're already seeing on the basis of our trackers uh, that uh, probability of recession in Europe is rising quite sharply. Um, and, uh, and, and that shows you that uh, A, ECB is very likely done. And B, uh, this, they are entering that phase uh, whereby you need to now understand what kind of growth damage we are looking at. Uh, at the same time, uh, in terms of the vulnerabilities of these higher for longer, uh, uh, Italy is being flagged uh, as a problem country once again, uh, whereby you have interest payments going up, fiscal which has been, uh, you know, not been uh, uh, being controlled or contained. Uh, and 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 the risk that you know bond vigilantes uh, like Steve <laughs> will uh, will look at them uh, in a different light. So 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 yes, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's a different environment in Europe right now. Okay, um, I, I'm not going to give Steve um, the opportunity to uh, to come back on that because Gita, I want to ask you another question about the reporting that's coming through from the analysts um, about how companies are positioned at the moment in this environment and how things are likely to change in the months to come, particularly around the debt that they have taken on board and um, how that needs to be refinanced. Salman and I have spent a long time discussing the refinancing requirements in the corporate sector. The reality is in most developed markets right now in the West, we have um, a corporate sector that has by and large termed out its debt. That means that it is taking longer for rising rates to actually transmit into um, corporate balance sheets and into corporate interest expense. Indeed, when asking our global analysts just this past week about what they were expecting for refinancing requirements, two thirds of our global analysts are telling us that they expect 10% or fewer of their companies to need meaningful refinancing this year. Um, so the they're just immune. Um, the, the, the ones that aren't um, refinancing are immune for now from rise, rising rates. I think that's right. And and you, it's no surprise that countries with more developed corporate debt markets like North America, like Europe, um, and indeed like Japan, according to our analysts, have even fewer refinancing requirements than their counterparts in some of the developing world. And then when we ask our analyst, okay, for then of all of the companies that you are seeing that do need to do a meaningful amount of refinancing, how, how are they going to um, 
um, access markets. And really, it's a very small number of companies that we expect to have trouble accessing markets over the next year. It's in places in the world where we've known that certain sectors are having trouble, like in the China property space. Um, it's in uh, real estate, perhaps in other places in the world. So um, very, very muted kind of difficulty in um, accessing markets. And for the most part, what we're seeing is that companies should be able to manage the increased in interest burden. So I agree with a common sentiment um, that Gita has just mentioned about the terming out of debt. Uh, the maturity wall, for example, in high yield debt in the US has been pushed out. And, you know, so companies refinanced in the good times when interest rates and all in yields are very low. So it's not like we've got an imminent wall of, of refinancing here. But I do think there's you know, this small cohort of companies that Gita is talking about. They're the more worrying ones, particularly in things like commercial real estate and so on, which have you know, we know are in problems here. But uh, what I would say here is that I think the um, the refinancing risks is not so it's not so great in the private sector. It's more it's been transferred to the public sector in the last few years or so. When you look at the interest burden that central banks are trying, you know, have have are creating here by raising interest rates and rising raising real interest rates in particular, it's having a huge detrimental impact on the public finances, such that you know, with this debt stack that governments have to refinance, I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen that that you know that the term premium being put back into core yields, and why we're seeing this uh, this general concern about the um, the amount of issuance that governments have to do. So I think that's where the problem is in reality, and that's why I don't think central banks can sit and watch this happen. In that, you know, because more and more scarce resources are going to, in the public sector are going to have to be used up to just finance interest payments alone, you know, it's going to be very unproductive, very uneconomical. So I think this level of real interest rates is, and real yields is way too high and that central banks have to step away here and they have to um, eventually end quantitative tightening. You know, there is very few, you know, when you look at the insensitive buyers, there's very few insensitive buyers now for U.S. Treasuries. You know, there's, whether it's central banks or whether it's uh, foreign uh, investors, Euro-Yen investors, where once you hedge back it from dollars back into the home currency, you just don't want to buy treasuries. So who's going to buy them? I think that's why I think the Fed eventually will have to relent and stop uh, quantitative tightening. And, you know, I'm not sure they'll go down the, the route of, of yield curve control or anything like that, but something has to be done to cap out core yields here. Uh, you know, and, and that's why I think central banks will eventually have to come to the rescue. Otherwise, we've got some bigger problems ahead. I think um, everything Steve said was was very well said. Um, the point that I would add, and I'm sure Salman's got plenty to say about this, is let's not underestimate the impact of the massive election cycle that we have in the year ahead of us. Um, we've already had Polish elections over the weekend, but we're going to have elections in the US, the UK, and a number of other countries around the world. And those will also tend to affect, um, in the relevant countries, central bank um, actions. Yep, we had New Zealand as well. Um, there's, uh, there's lots going on. An awful lot to take in. Um, and given all of this, what's it like to actually manage money? Uh, at the moment, a little bit earlier, I spoke to multi-asset portfolio manager Caroline Shaw to ask her just that.
so caution has been our key word this year uh, and doing that in in a number of ways uh, so we're fortunate in multi-asset that we have multiple asset classes so we've been able to stay really diversified uh, and use some of the tools available to us uh, to move more def- into more defensive sectors into more um, equities concentrated in say quality uh, dividend producing equities where you've got a little bit more defensive characteristics uh, and that's proved really helpful during the year uh, in terms of other asset classes uh, commodities have been relatively defensive um, we do see um, transition materials theme uh, this net zero energy transition that we're going to have to go through uh, we see that as a, as a long-running theme. The IEA um, suggests that there's going to be a four times demand for minerals uh, by 2040. So there is a structural growth theme at play there. Uh, and so that is a, is a strong driver for, for that asset class uh, where you know that does complement some of the other um, positions we have in the portfolios. So I think being multi-asset is an advantage in this environment. Um, we've got listed alternatives available to us, real assets, um, and then, of course, cash as well. So we probably have some tools to weather the storm. E- easier, perhaps, than stock picking, than, than trying to find winners when, um, when things are distorted at the moment. I think I think it is easier because we've got the other asset classes. But you know, within stock picking, you've got the opportunity to to go into more defensive um, stocks, more defensive companies in in, def- in sectors such as say healthcare, for example, and maybe consumer staples, where you know you've got more defensive characteristics and they're in a better position to to weather the upcoming storms that we might might face. So Fidelity's house view at the moment is um, for a recession uh, to come probably next year, twenty twenty four. Where would you be um, positioning in anticipation of that? So I think our views are unchanged because we're already positioned fairly cautiously. Um, I think the issue is one of timing now and it's one of being able to anticipate where the opportunities might lie coming out of that recession and how we should position for them. So trying to look a little bit further ahead. I mean, what we're seeing at the moment is, you know, volatility is quite high. And with that... um, we're seeing opportunities. So I'm going to have to press you on that, though, because it sounds tempting. So um, you're already positioned defensively. You're ready for a recession. Um, where then are you seeing these opportunities? What are the types of things that you're going for? So from my perspective uh, as a portfolio manager in thematic equities, we're looking for structural long-term growth themes. So artificial intelligence is one of the themes we've been pursuing. Um, we see that the companies that are involved in the the technology to enable AI are the near-term beneficiaries. And so that's where we've, we're currently invested and where we are looking forward to investing more. Um, but as we see that AI theme develop, we expect there to be lots of other companies that might benefit from AI uh, as they open up new uh, new markets, as they um, have efficiency improvements in their business. But it's not that area that we're looking to capture at the moment. Are there any surprises um, as you as you look further out, as you as you look beyond the um, the, the potential recession? Are there any surprises in the types of um, uh, sectors or the types of winners um, that you expect to see there? 
I'm not sure surprises as such, but I think there's some exciting opportunities. So one area where we want to do some more work and, and get some access to is, is around the theme of financial inclusion and trying to look at opportunities in the world of providing uh, financial services to an enormous growing population from the developing world uh, and you know the next generation finance and the digital element of finance is quite an exciting place to, to look uh, for those opportunities. So I, I think we're focusing on on the opportunities that are ahead of us now in terms of structural growth into the next generation. Caroline Shaw speaking to me a little bit earlier. Now, Salman, um, we've focused a lot so far today on Western central banks, but I want to shift now to Asia. And China in particular has unleashed more than a dozen policy measures to stimulate the economy, including cutting the benchmark interest rates and low mortgage rates for home buyers. Do you think all of that will work? There are lots, there's lots of little tinkering around the edges, it feels, rather than a sledgehammer. Um, but will will it work? So, as you said, it's very incremental. Um, uh, according to our estimates, uh, it's around 0.7% of GDP so far. So it's not significant in terms of moving the uh, the dial, if you will. The property sector remains under pressure. There's a clear-cut confidence shock going through uh, that part of the economy. The question, uh, again, this is a big topic uh, in Marrakesh last week as well. You know, quite a few people talking about out, oh, China is, uh, is going to be the next Japan. We, we do disagree with that because China is protecting its uh, property sector through prices. It's, obviously, volumes have collapsed, but they are protecting the, the price side of things. And then secondly, the structure of uh, the banking sector in China is very different. There is likely to be no problem on renminbi liquidity ever in China. So the, the cost of that could, could be potentially lower growth. So that's the transition. Uh, it's a transition economy. Uh, and obviously, there are some sectors which have nothing to do with property sector. Uh, which have been uh, have been under pressure as well. But from a macro perspective, we are not expecting a massive slowdown. In fact, we are of the view of a more controlled stabilization, more growing of this policy support, as you mentioned, uh, and, and the fact that, uh, you know, uh, the banking sector remains uh, uh, remains solvent and, and liquid. And Salman, finally um, on this, um, you tangentially touched on uh, Japan. China is not the new Japan, uh, but Japan is <laughs> Japan. And it's um, it's so interesting at the moment. Um, where do you think the country will, will go for the rest of this year and next? Quite a few, obviously, uh, dynamics happening in the equity market from a more pure macro perspective. Uh, they have uh, decided to go through gradual normalization, which we think uh, is is not the way to go. They, this is a you know uh, inconsistent policy in terms of ICC. They have tinkered with it uh, uh, now, and and ultimately they have to exit it. So they're waiting for uh, the shunto wage uh, uh, negotiations. Uh, they're trying to focus, i.e., the uh, the Bank of Japan is trying to focus on more evidence that inflation has bedded in before. Uh, you know, getting out of uh, uh, this uh, this uh, uh, this monetary policy stance, which makes no sense uh, in the current environment as we've been discussing. So, in the short term, the risk is that, uh, as as Steve was mentioning, uh, if we continue to have this upward pressure on yields, they they may have to disruptively exit that. So that's a risk we have to 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 keep in mind. Uh, but at the at the on the other side, you know, uh, uh, there are good reasons why Japan has to get out of that policy stance. That's going to do with you know stronger growth, uh, and of course uh, a more broad uh, broadening of inflationary pressures uh, the economy is feeling. 
We're almost out of time, but we still have enough time to squeeze in uh, rich pickings part of the game, hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Steve, let me come to you first. Okay, so hot cakes. So I would say that you've got to be super defensive here. And again, this is a time, I think, where you want to have that duration risk, keep your credit risk uh, on the light side. So I would be looking at things like global ag funds, dollar bond funds, something where you have, um, you know, it's, it's a higher asset, a quality asset class. Um, I think on the hot um, potatoes, so Salman stole my thunder earlier by talking about BTP. So <laughs> I think that for me is the, one of the most worrying aspect of what the ECB have done by raising interest rates pretty aggressively. So this is Italian government bonds? This is Italian government bonds. Um, so spreads there have already blown out. They put measures in a while back actually to limit that uh, spread widening. But um, we're at 200 basis points, which is kind of the tipping point, if you like. It's normally the, the time where people stand up and notice. Um, it's the all-in yield of 4.8%. So the refinancing of the of BTPs, of Italian bonds, which I think is a concerning bit during a time where at the beginning of next year, there's going to be huge amounts of BTP issuance. So that would be, I think that's one of the big concerns I've got right now. Okay, one to watch. Thank you very much for that. Salman, let me come to you next, please. Your hot cakes. A bit complicated, but I think it may make sense is the quality income. I think balance sheet quality matters in this environment. Um, uh, and that's an angle we would, uh, you know, uh, uh, suggest uh, people look at in their portfolios uh, uh, because you may have different, uh, you know, uh, views on the transmission channel, but higher, higher for longer is a reality and it's, it's potentially here to stay. So strength of balance sheet uh, uh, matters. And in terms of, uh, you know, potatoes, there are actually a lot of them <laughs> in my mind. It's uh, it's going to be a tricky one to choose, but uh, but I agree with uh, with Steve earlier. I think credit risk is something uh, we would uh, I would flag as uh, as something which we have to be careful about as we move into twenty twenty four. A consistent theme there. Thank you very much, Salman. Finally, Geeta, coming to you. So I've given a very similar answer for hotcakes most of the year, saying I, I liked euro-denominated uh, bank debt. But um, I'm going to say this time, I think cash is really attractive. Oh. <laughs> I'm keeping with the bearish theme. Good news for piggy banks. Um, um, look, ultimately, money markets funds have seen the inflows they have for a reason. You're getting a pretty attractive um, all-in yield right now um, to, to hold cash. Um, so so that's that's going to be my hot cake, my hot potato. Um, I'm going to be the um, credit analyst amongst the group and, and basically say, I feel like we have to go back to basics at looking at the basic governance around a lot of our corporates. Um, we continue to see um, small blowups um, at individual idiosyncratic levels. So I would say um, anything that has a questionable governance structure, I would drop that like a hot potato. Well, that's an exercise for the analysts that you work with, isn't it, Gita? Keeping their eyes peeled. Well, that's it for this month. Thank you to Steve, Gita and Salman for joining me and to Caroline Shaw as well, speaking earlier. And thanks to you for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please do like, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. You can read more analysis from Salman and the macroeconomics team on your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. The producer today was Holly Eastman with production support from Callum Blitz. For now, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye.
This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.